So you were at brunch when Biden was called? (laughs) I was at brunch. Jordan Weissman is a staff writer here at Slate. I was literally sitting there with a mimosa in hand as Donald <laughs> as the election was called. As for me, I was sitting at home when I got the news. I could tell Joe Biden had won because of the racket outside my house. It pretty much went on all day. Car horns were honking. There were fireworks. In these first few moments, you can literally hear someone yell, Donald Trump's a loser. There was a kid who was literally, like, gleefully taunting President Trump, like, hey, hey. He's doing, like, Nelson from The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> kind of. And then it was it was really weird because I, I went out during the day and went to Prospect Park, the big park in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I haven't quite experienced anything like it. Even I, for one day, managed to feel good about the outcome of this election. So that's how, that's, that's how much uplift there was for that one afternoon. The reason Jordan is not embracing this feeling is simple. He doesn't think it's going to last. Just before the election, you wrote this article where <laughs> was... you were grim. <laughs> you were on an emotional roller coaster. You said, do not for a second forget that absolutely everything about Trump's presidency and the year that has led us to this point has been utterly, incalculably insane. A 50-car pileup of reminders that we are a broken society with a broken political system. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's Stick still, with it. That's still where I'm at. Like, I haven't changed. <laughs> That's still my basic feeling. The road ahead is going to be very difficult. You know, we we are still the same, in a lot of ways, the same country we were one week ago, one month ago. And and the work isn't done. It's not even near done. And it's, this is, it's like, we we are going to be, this is a conflict that is just kind of starting, I think. It's not ending. Today on the show, what happens now? Biden's won the election. Will he win a battle of ideas? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So here's where we are as of Sunday night. While President Trump has yet to concede, on Saturday... Joe Biden was declared the president-elect by the Associated Press and the major television networks. Results are trickling in for congressional races, too. In the Senate, it looks like two Georgia seats will go to a runoff in January. To gain legislative control, Democrats need to win both of these races. Meanwhile, in the House, Republicans have flipped five seats so far. They're whittling away at the Democratic majority. I I do want to yank you back to, like, 
the good news. I mean, before... (laughs) (laughs) You had enough of Eeyore already? (laughs) Before this election, there was this working group that got together to try to game out, like, what could happen with this election? Like, what if it's a contested election? And it was so grim. It was like every possibility ended with a constitutional crisis or, like, us on the brink of civil war. And it's heartening that here we are, almost a week after the election, and, you know, that's really not what we see. Like, some people have been worried about poll watchers coming to the polls and scaring people away. Like, I didn't see that. I haven't seen major violence. I haven't seen any of the stuff that was kind of giving folks nightmares ahead of time. Oh, we we absolutely avoided a worst-case scenario during the election on Election Day. I think that's that's obviously the case. Like like you said, there there was no violence. Just as importantly, this this election is probably not coming down to a Supreme Court decision, right? That was that was the great fear that Donald Trump was angling to try and throw this election to the courts, which and which would have required a very very narrow margin in order to to make that happen, to make that doable. Right. It wasn't a landslide, which everyone said would totally shut things down, but it's a wide enough margin that you know, counting the votes again probably won't make a difference. Counting the votes again won't make a difference. Um, Eliminate or, you know, nullifying late arriving ballots in Pennsylvania, which was sort of key to Donald Trump's strategy, probably won't make a difference. Uh, You know, the gap in in that state is just too large. Um, And so, yeah, his his plan to to toss this to uh, Amy Coney Barrett failed. And the legal strategy seems strange, too, where it's like we saw this press conference this weekend at the landscaping store with Rudy Giuliani, and it was very bizarre for a lot of reasons, but mostly because it's so it was so unpresidential. It was funny, but the only reason you could laugh is because of those wider margins and the fact that the legal case was weak. Right. Like, it's absurd. And <laughs> it's not going to, you know, it's just there's there's nothing really to worry about at this point. But or at least in terms of this election. But what what concerns me and what I, I wrote in my piece was that, you know, the Supreme Court's conservatives were signaling that they would be open to a challenge. Right. Like in the mo- weeks leading up, they were sort of flashing signs that, hey, if you can navigate this kind of a case our way, we might be receptive to it. And, and they were kind of spelling out the legal theories that Trump would need to seize on in order to maybe prevail. Um, so maybe not this time, but there's a roadmap. Th- there's a roadmap. It's just I'm I'm not comfortable with the fact that the Supreme Court, that the judiciary was kind of ready to play along if the opportunity really presented itself. The opportunity did not present itself this time. But, it, you know, that's that still feels like a close call to me, especially given that it seems unlikely at this point that that Joe Biden is going to have a Democratic Senate to work with. You know, it could still happen. We could win those Georgia specials. There's still votes being counted in Alaska. But it, it doesn't seem uh, like a strong probability. And even if he does have a majority, it's going to be so thin that the chances of any kind of court reform, you know, any kind of expansion of the Supreme Court is is almost certainly off the table. And so this is this is the judiciary is going to be around for a while. And you know, they've they they've kind of shown us what they are. We we have to worry about what comes next time. And so that's that's part of, you know, the the worst didn't happen, but I don't know. I I, I just don't take that much comfort in 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 
that fact. One other bit of relief has come in the form of public declarations of support for Joe Biden from Republicans like former President George W. Bush and former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Even some contemporary GOP leaders are staying away from Trump's claims of voter fraud. But Jordan says that might be because the most likely outcome in this election is one that could benefit the Republican Party, just not candidate Donald Trump. On the one hand, you do have Republicans like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz going on TV and defending Trump and suggesting this election really isn't over yet. Um, But, you know, you've got the entire Rupert Murdoch empire at this point kind of kind of calling the ball game, right? Like Fox News and and the New York Post and and the tabloids that Murdoch controls are all sort of sending the signal that the, the game's over, that, that Trump's done, he's lost. I think it's pretty hard for Donald Trump to to try and any funny business at this point when when the Murdoch empire isn't going to give him a hand. They're, they're ready for the next thing. And I'm sure part of that is just because they're looking at a situation that's not bad for the Republican Party, right? Like, if you're interested in long-term conservative policy goals, this outcome is actually pretty good for you. It's true. You get the most unpredictable player in your roster off the team. That's the president. And you probably keep control of the Senate. And so you can kind of block anything Joe Biden wants to do. And then you get to run again. You get to run again in four years with someone who might be more sane and competent and you know, the the Democrats did not do fantastically in the House. It looks like they're going to lose at least seven seats, possibly as many as 11, 12. Um, their, their majority is going to be down to a pretty thin margin, which is going to make it hard for them to even, I mean, they won't be able to govern without the Senate, but it's, it's going to make maintaining any unity in the House a little trickier. Um, because almost every vote's going to matter. Um, well, and we see this already. Oh, where... they're already screaming at each other. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, and yeah. I mean, you had this, you had this phone call among House Democrats, this debrief, where Abigail Spanberger, this uh, she won a swing district in Virginia. Yeah, a close race. Just apparently went off screaming about how she never wanted to hear the words defund the police or socialism ever again and that how these you know crazy left-wing ideas had cost the cost them several seats and had many members had just faced millions in dollars of ads uh, connecting them to the far left of their party and that it, it was you know it was time to kind of put all that stuff aside and get back to basics um, you know I guess moderate the message a bit. Jim Clyburn, the the who had essentially been the kingmaker in this election for Joe Biden, you know, echoed that. He said he didn't really want to hear about socialism until the the end of the Georgia special election because he he's worried that will cost the Democrats those seats. Can I ask you something though? I mean, hearing these stories, <laughs> my question was for the Democrats, what are the basics if we're getting back to basics? Oh, that's tricky. That that's a good question and I, I think we have to kind of figure that out. I will say that, you know, while the moderates were blaming the lefties, of course, the lefties are blaming the moderates for their own misfortune. You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gave an interview uh, to The New York Times. And launched like a tweet storm. She really went in. Oh, yeah, she went off. And she pointed out that, A, there are plenty of swing district Democrats who supported Medicare for All who did manage to win. Um, There is, you know, Katie Porter, for instance. She's pretty far to the left. Um, policy-wise, but she manages to do well in her 
purplish California district. Um, and that, you know, her diagnosis was that the moderates in the and the mainstream Democratic Party are just really bad at running a modern campaign, that they, they're bad at digital, that they don't really know how to do door knocking and outreach, and that this is what the left is good at. And that, hey, we they, they're willing to teach them um, if they're willing to work together and stop being so accusatory. You know, we don't know the answer here, right? Like, it's not clear who's really right. I think my everyone's kind of naive guess is it's a little of column A and a little of column B. Hmm. If, you know, millions and dollars of ads about defunding the police probably did hurt some Democrats at the same time. Yeah, they're probably I, I bet that some of these campaigns were not run super well. They are all working from kind of bad data and bad projections about what the electorate would look like even because the polling was so off in so many places about who would turn out. Um, you know, I think there's going to be plenty of time for recriminations and arguing and analysis about what exactly went wrong. But like you said, there is this kind of question about what does the Democratic Party really stand for right now, especially at a moment where it's not even clear it's going to be able to legislate or, or and deliver on the promises that it made that Joe Biden made during his campaign. And it's a it's a toughie. More what next after a quick break. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As Democrats think about what went right and what went very wrong for them this election cycle, Jordan says there are plenty of contradictions to Maul. There's the fact that the Democrats won the presidency, but lost ground, down ballot. And then there's the fact that where Democratic candidates didn't do so hot, Democratic policies fared just fine. And this election gave us like several reminders of that. You know, the most, the clearest one was in Florida where they voted, you know, they voted for Donald Trump. Um, and then 60% of, of the state voted for a $15 minimum wage. And it follows the last election cycle where Florida voted to give the vote to formerly incarcerated people and elected a whole lot of Republicans. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, there were there were like five different states that either legalized or liberalized on marijuana through ballot initiatives this year. Um, Arizona raised income taxes. I mean, <laughs> like they passed an income tax hike on wealthy residents um, to fund education. Um, and there, there were some pretty big defeats, too. Uh, California was just kind of a train wreck on every front. Um, you know, they got rid of they, they brought back cash bail and and decided to make Uber drivers 1099 employees again. But still there, I mean, there were a lot of progressive victories at the ballot. And I, it's, you know, it's figuring out, I, I, I do think there is something to be said for just like figuring out which policies of yours the voters really, really like. And just like sticking to that and just like repeating them over and over again, kind of the way Republicans just repeat lower taxes over and over again. Like Democrats just need to kind of find their like core message, their core promises and just like put them on bumper stickers everywhere they can. And I, I have my th thoughts on what those might be. You know, if you look at the ballot initiatives, right, what are the three things that basically win everywhere? 
It's basically minimum wage hikes, Medicaid expansion, and marijuana legalization. Yeah, you call them the three M's. The three M's, the three M formula to winning elections. It's like those three just win everywhere. And so I sort of feel like just doing those like off the bat. I mean, the problem with it is that you have to kill the filibuster to increase the minimum wage. But like just promising that you'll do those three things and just like making that the Democratic brand for a while doesn't strike me as like crazy. Just saying like, yeah, we'll expand Medicaid again. You loved it the first time. We'll expand it more. Like it's it's not Medicare for all. We're not taking away anyone's health care, but more people can just have it. You know, I think that those are three things that I, w- I would in my ideal world love to see Democrats uh, push hard on. But um, and I think it would be popular. But, you know, again, that's uh, that's assuming we can win those two races in Georgia or somehow by a miracle pick up Alaska. And it's just not I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I'm that much of an optimist. Obviously, I'm not that much of an optimist. You can tell that I am not that much of an optimist. <laughs> but there is something that's hard here, which is there was clear evidence from this election that the voters Many voters, I shouldn't say the voters, many voters responded negatively to the idea of socialism. And so many of these ideas get sort of stuffed into that box when you talk about them nationally. And, you know, Joe Biden did rely on a lot of people in states that aren't particularly safe for Democrats. So how do you think about that, about making these arguments at the national level where it seems like there's some kind of disconnect between democratic ideas and the people who are running to implement those ideas? You know, one thing that's important to just point out here is that the advantage of putting an individual policy on the ballot, especially a popular one like a minimum wage hike, is that you can be pro-life or anti-immigration and still vote for a minimum wage hike. Right. Like political parties and politicians come. They're, they're a big bundled package. Right. There's <laughs> like they're the whole they're the whole cable bundle. Um, whereas maybe you just want Netflix. I don't know. Like <laughs> the minimum wage is the minimum wage hike is, is just Hulu. Um, and so that's that's so you can get like that narrower piece of the pie. But um, and it, it maybe in some ways that also disadvantages Democrats and that voters feel like they can get the things they really want a la carte and then vote for Republicans for the other stuff because they like conservative judges or whatnot. You know, I think the question to me is just like, not whether is like socialism good or bad? Is that really turning people off? It's just like, what is what's actually the most effective way to frame this stuff for an American audience? And I I don't know if anyone's quite figured that out yet. I just don't know if like someone's found like the magic words to make all this stuff hang together in the minds of swing voters in North Carolina. Um, You know, they're doing a better job of it, I guess, in like Georgia. But like, there are a lot of parts of the country like you know, Iowa or Montana, where they're just not breaking through. Well, we're still at the point where Mitch McConnell is saying, I'm not going to approve cabinet positions <laughs> yeah. I don't like. Right. Like Mitch McConnell is already signaling that he, he's he's going to be a thorn in in Joe Biden's side, possibly to the exact same extent he was to Obama's. There's there's no it's not clear yet how much room there actually is for bipartisan agreement. Um, if if Republicans maintain control of the Senate. And, you know, who knows? Maybe they won't. Maybe, again, there will be a miracle in Georgia. But, you know, if if they do, if Republicans, you know, do hold on, if we if if Joe Biden does not even get two years um, to kind of legislate semi freely with a bare majority, it could be a really long time before progressives and or Democrats 
have a chance to do anything significant. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why everyone's so worried about the House right now and the fact that they lost seats is that two years from now, we will be going into a midterm election and the president's party typically loses seats in a midterm. Traditionally, that happens. And then making matters worse, that will be the first election after redistricting. And once again, it looks like because Republicans managed to hold on to so many state legislators, they will largely control that process around the country and have an opportunity to gerrymander a lot of Democrats out of their swing districts right now. Um, And so it is conceivable that even if Democrats have a shot at taking the Senate in 2022, um, they could lose the House in that same year. It is entirely plausible that Joe Biden will not be able to really legislate effectively for his entire first term in office. And if he doesn't run again, his only term in office, Um, which is just it's it's sobering and it's frustrating. Well, you've been a real buzzkill. (laughs) Sorry, I just I, I, I told I had one happy day. And like I should yeah, I should say, like, there are things that like even if Joe Biden can't pass huge sweeping pieces of legislation. He can try to do things through executive authority. Um, And there may be some there may be serious progress he could make on climate change or, you know, labor regulations just through the power of of the administrative state. We'll see. Again, what's frustrating there is that right now um, a very, very conservative court could just have veto power over any uh, over any particularly dramatic moves he tries to make. so it's not like it'll necessarily be a wasted presidency, but it's, you know, there's a there's a danger of it being a wasted presidency. It's that is a non-zero possibility right now. Jordan Weisman, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Jordan Weisman is Slate's senior business and economics correspondent. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Elena Schwartz. We're getting help this week from Franny Kelly. Alicia Montgomery and Allison Benedict look over our shoulders in a good way. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you right back in this feed tomorrow. Jordan Weissman, thank you for this interview. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Let me do that again. <laughs> no, no, that's like a totally. That is totally appropriate. Like, I'm sorry for ruining your day, your listeners' days. I'm, I'm like not. I'm not who you come to for therapy. <laughs>